Welcome to the podcast of Hope Community Church. Hope exists to be a church where people can experience the transformative power of the gospel in the context of grace-centered community. We strive to be real people looking to the real Jesus for real change that can have redemptive impact among individuals, local communities, our city, and the world. For more information, visit hopecommunity.com. So as I referenced a few minutes ago, our passage this week is the longest single story in the book of Mark, and it is the longest story in the entire Bible that deals specifically with exorcism, with a demon deliverance. Clearly, there's an emphasis that God is telling us of pay attention to this story. It would be easy for us um, to just skip right over it. I think that if we're honest in our current culture, when we are directed, we, we are confronted directly with a story about the transcendent nature of evil, is we just want to quickly dismiss it. Um, we, I think, arrogantly even want to say, well, you know, this story is really just about a mentally ill man, and they just didn't quite have the, you know, um, education and um, awareness that we do currently to know what was really going on. He wasn't actually possessed by thousands of demons. Well, just so we're clear, it is extremely illogical to say that I like what Jesus has to say about grace, love, forgiveness, mercy, heaven, but completely reject what he had to say about the transcendent nature of evil. Um, Our knee-jerk reaction to do that as a culture is more a reflection of our sinful hearts than it is anything the Bible has to say. And I think we as a culture need to own at the very beginning that we've been conditioned Um, to just reject any notion, not only of transcendent evil, but really of transcendence altogether. And so I'm going to read for you the quote I put on the front of your bulletin. This is a long quote. I struggled to chop it down. This is from a book called Recapturing the Wonder, Transcendent Faith in a Disenchanted World. Our staff read this together a few years ago, maybe more than a few now. But Cosper says, I react to the suggestion of a miracle or for that matter, any thoughts about God, the spiritual or the transcendent with skepticism and cynicism. It's my default setting. I am programmed to expect that the world is what I can see, touch and measure. And any thought or idea that runs against that expectation is met with resistance. Programming is actually a great way to think about it. I have learned to see the world this way and I don't have to think about it anymore. I don't think I'm alone. I believe most people experience something similar, a subtle but strong resistance to faith and a skepticism towards anything that veers toward the supernatural. This way of seeing the world is what Charles Taylor calls disenchantment. A disenchanted world has been drained of magic, of any supernatural presence, of spirits and God and transcendence. A disenchanted world is a material world where what you see is what you get. It is not entirely a world without God or without religion. Rather, it's a world where God and religion are superfluous. You can believe whatever you want so long as it doesn't actually affect your everyday experience or you don't actually take it too seriously. So maybe that resonates deeply with you. As I said, um, it could be easy for us commonly to just say, oh, this man was just mentally ill, but... When we say that, it's more like the church I grew up in saying when the Bible talks about drinking wine, it really just refers to grape juice. Not only is that not true, they had just decided drinking's wrong, so we're going to misinterpret the Bible to affirm what we believe. Jesus and all of his disciples believed in the transcendent nature of evil. They believed in demons. They believed in Satan. 
And this passage makes us wrestle with that truth. The reality is, because we seek to reject any notion of the transcendent nature of evil, um, it has had grave consequences for us as a society. It has made us um, intellectually unable to actually deal with so much of the evil we see in the world. And Andrew Delbanco, who is a self-described um, secular liberal um, at Columbia University, wrote a book um, speaking to this specifically. And this was almost 30 years ago. He published this book titled The Death of Satan in 1995. And we are light years beyond what he was describing now. But he says this, he says, a gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources available for coping with it. What Del Banco was arguing is that it's clear that we see all the time in news headlines and in our own lives that there is such a thing as evil that we can't explain or control. But because our culture has said that there's no such thing as transcendent evil, that we actually just live in a materialistic world, we can explain away everything, we find ourselves um, really speechless with how to even process and deal with the evil in the world. In Ephesians 6, Paul says, we need to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, if you know Paul's story from reading um, his epistles, he clearly knew how to wrestle with flesh and blood. He was beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, thrown in jail unjustly. But he says, we don't only wrestle with flesh and blood. A part of how this shows up for us is when we see evil, we immediately want to say there must be some um, explanation. There must be something if we study this person's story, if we look at their relationship with their dad, then we can figure out what exactly caused this, therefore make sure it doesn't happen to us. And Del Banco says that this knee-jerk reaction really to think that we only wrestle against flesh and blood is a result of a materialistic, secular worldview. And he says the greatest way it shows up in our society is in the novel, The Silence of the Lambs, which was written right before he wrote his book. It turned into a movie. You've probably seen the movie. And in this movie, The Silence of the Lambs, the main character is Hannibal Lecter. And he is an evil, evil man. He is a ser serial killer, but he's also a brilliant forensic psychiatrist. And in the movie, there's this young detective, and her name is Officer Starling, who is assigned to the case. And, and she's sitting and trying to study and observe Hannibal Lecter. And she says, I just can't understand, like, what happened to you? She says, what made you like this? Now, this is the question that we all ask naturally. I want to know what flesh and blood reason caused you to be this evil. And, and listen to what he wrote in the book. He turns to her and says, nothing has happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. Nothing has happened to me. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. You've given up good and evil for behaviorism, Officer Starling. You've got everybody in moral dignity pants. Nothing is ever anybody's fault. Look at me, Officer Starling. Can you stand to say I'm evil? And that's a question that we're often confronted with. Del Blanco says, these words are the epitome of the modern horror and the modern dilemma. It's the horror of knowing that we can't answer the monster's questions. So think about yourself. Does your worldview have a category for the transcendent nature of evil at work in the world? How do you respond 
When you hear stories about the Hamas terrorist, when you hear the story of Dylan Roof, a white supremacist murdering those innocent people in church in Charleston in 2015, how do you answer and explain what is going on with them? C.S. Lewis says there are two errors when dealing with the topic of spiritual warfare and evil. He says there are two equal and opposite errors into which we can fall about devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence altogether. The other is to believe and feel an, un, an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. And I think that can be the danger for us. I know a lot of people, um, you know, grew up in a, in a context religiously that they felt like everything was blamed on like Satan. Anything that bad was happening, it was like there's some demonic spiritual warfare. And so they felt like there was an excuse not to own their own sin and repent. Well, if you've been at Hope more than three weeks, you know that I, you know, land on the other side way too much. Because I grew up in a context that I don't feel like really owned our depravity and utter need of grace that was more of a moral encouragement form of work salvation, um, I hammer all too often our depravity and don't address enough the reality of spiritual warfare and the transcendent nature of evil. You know that Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is probably my favorite passage in the entire Bible where Paul is arguing salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, it's not your own doing, it is a complete gift. And in the first three verses, Paul is arguing about the depravity of all mankind and how by nature we're all children of wrath and deep need of grace. In other words, you can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps to earn your way to a relationship with Jesus. But notice what he also says in Ephesians 2. He says, remember, this is to the church, that you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air, the spirit at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. No one reading that would have said, you're right. I was fully aware before Jesus saved me that I was following Satan. That's the most damning aspect of the way Satan can work and evil can work in our life is that we're completely unaware of it all too often. Now, this is way too long of an intro. I got to hurry up and get into the passage. But on the one hand, I need to say that I'm sorry for not um, highlighting this enough, that there is a transcendent nature of evil, which is why Jesus, our King, says you must pray, not one time, but regularly, you, Lord, deliver us from evil. And we need to be able to talk about it and have a category for it more than we often do. Now, the main thing I want us to take away um, as we look at this text is to know, believe, and remember that all of our attempts to control and contain evil are not only um, fruitless, but they often end up in greater slavery. Now, the good news is that we have hope when we run to Jesus similar to the man in our passage. In humility and in brokenness cry out for deliverance, and he always eagerly longs to deliver. And so if we back up and jump into this text and say, okay, what is going on with this man? And I think even acknowledging kind of how we think about evil as a society, starting with the question, how did this community seek to deal with the evil that they observed? Well, the clear answer is the same way that we do. They tried to contain and control it by removing this man and locking him up. In other words, throwing him in prison. Verses two through four tells us that when Jesus stepped out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs had an unclean spirit. He came to meet him. He lived among the tombs. They tried to bind him, but weren't able to even anymore, even with chains. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, 
but he wrenched the chains apart, broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Main point I want us to see here, it's not wrong to have prisons and to put people in them, but this approach that when we see evil and just want to separate it and lock it up has no power to deliver that person from the evil that is dominating their life. And that's clear. Nothing in this story is highlighting the community's approach is going to deliver this man in any way, shape, or form. And not only is it powerless to deliver him, but it even says that this approach made the evil worse in his life. No one could even bind him anymore. Clearly, this indicates that at some point, this man used to be weaker, he used to be manageable, but not anymore which leads to the much more personal question for us to consider, how does evil work in the human heart? Well, the answer biblically is it is extremely complex. It would be way too foolish and naive for us to think if I'm experiencing spiritual warfare, um, then then Satan or demons are just going to make it clear. They're just going to hit me right in the face so I know for a fact, oh, I'm under a spiritual attack. Well, Satan is, he's much wiser and smarter than that. And so the way evil often um, really takes root in our heart is through our sin nature. And so when we sin, that's why the Bible says when we sin, we give Satan um, a foothold. We give him a place to actually set up shop and camp out in our lives. And so Ephesians 4, Paul says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity or foothold to the devil. That's actually not a great translation, opportunity. That's technically the the Greek word um, topos from which we get the word topography. He's saying when you're angry and you let that anger fester and grow and you go to bed and you don't deal with it, then you're telling Satan, come set up shop. Come, Come, you know, take up residence right here and just begin to produce evil fruit in my life. And so Paul goes on to say, let the thief no longer steal, rather let him labor doing honest work so that he may have something to share. Then he says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear and do not grieve the Holy Spirit for you by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. What Paul is saying is, is is that when you um, live out of your sin nature, you're just opening the doors wide to your heart and life and telling Satan, come on in and set up shop. And often, sadly, what will happen when you do that is it'll feel good initially. And you may even feel powerful and strong when that's the case. Stephanie and I had a huge argument on Monday, and I was so mad. I felt like she had misrepresented me in a counseling appointment. I felt like she had, you know, slandered me to Roger, and I was so angry and so hurt. I didn't want to talk. I went to bed angry two nights in a row, and, and, and I'd love to say I just stayed in a neutral, mad place. But what happened over those two days is I just kept convincing myself more and more how right I was and how wrong she was. And even when friends of mine who know me and know that I do this all the time said, hey, maybe you should consider what she's saying. Like some of the things she said I've seen in our relationship, I'm like, I don't want to hear it. And it wasn't until the elders met and, and one of our elders, Brad Gross, said, hey, what's going on with you? And I was like, I'm just, I'm not, I'm not in a good place. And he's like, I'm going to pray for you right now. And I love that he said that. I'm going to stop and pray right now instead of, oh, well, let me, let me dig all into your story. Let me find out all the reasons that this could be the case. Again, processing our story, wanting to know what happened. That's not bad. Don't misunderstand me. But it was only when he began to pray for me, and honestly, I didn't even like it. And so he prayed for me. I was still in a bad mood. I went to the office, 
And then his wife said, hey, I think you should listen to this sermon on spiritual warfare, Shocker by Keller. And it was amazing. And I'm listening to it and I'm, I'm just in academic mode. Here's a couple of good points. He's the one who talked about Andrew Del Banco and the death of Satan. I stole all that from him, Shocker. And then, and then and Keller says, listen, we are extremely naive about the approach of evil and we want to make it way too black and white and simplistic. But the way it works is so intermingled and the way Satan gets a foothold and an opportunity is through your sin nature. And he said, literally, when you're angry and you're bitter and you're resentful and your pride is just on overdrive, you feel good. You are telling Satan, come set up shop. I want you to just camp out in my heart. And the Lord literally in that moment said to me, Matt, that's what you're doing. That's what you're doing right now. Look at how you're treating your wife. And look at the fruit it's producing in your life. I didn't have in those previous two days any joy, any peace, any freedom. I wasn't excited to encourage and give grace to others. I walked around and pouted and I moped. I looked for every opportunity to defend myself and try to boast. And that's what evil does. It makes you feel good, but it leads you on a path of destruction. Notice in the text, it says that this man couldn't be bound, but what? He had to cut himself, right? He, he, he clearly had experienced something that had hardened him so much that now he's actually cutting himself to actually feel. This is what evil and sin does in our hearts. Maybe the first time you start looking at pornography, you feel alive and excited, Maybe the first time you yell at someone and defend yourself, you think, I'm finding my voice. I'm standing up for myself. Maybe the first time you cut a few corners to get in a promotion at work, you think, well, this is the position I actually need. Maybe when you find yourself gossiping and trashing someone else, you think, well, at least I'm fitting in with the crowd. This is the way evil comes in and kind of sets up residence in our heart and just grows and grows and grows until it begins to actually curse us and lead to nothing fruitful at all. The most damning aspect of the way evil works in our life is that we're not aware that we're giving Satan a foothold when it begins to grow in us. And so I would ask you to at least be open to the possibility right now that there's some form of evil that is affecting you, that there's some form of evil that is seeking to gain a foothold in your heart and life that you need Jesus to deliver you from. I think about even in the um, Swamp Kings Netflix documentary about Urban Meyer. I had a, a buddy that was coaching at Clemson and he said to me, I think it's almost hard to be extremely successful at the highest levels of college football, professional sports, if you don't make it an idol, if you don't make it a counterfeit guide that requires blood. And so if you've seen Swamp Kings, Urban Meyer tells the story after working obsessively and they win their first championship and they beat Ohio State, sorry Buckeye fans. And he said the next morning, you know, he called his dad and he said, I finally did it. I finally accomplished all my dreams. From here on out, it's only gonna be fun. No more stress. Yeah, everybody's laughing that knows his story, right? I mean, it chewed him up so badly that he was having heart palpitations. And he said in the documentary, no more untrue words have ever come out of my mouth. He took something good, I wanna coach, I wanna invest in young men. And it got so twisted up over time and he had such a foothold of evil in his heart and his life without ever saying, oh yeah, Satan, come give me this power to be a great coach. He was completely unaware while it was obvious to everyone it's destroying your life. And sadly, it's just continued to unfold even when he went to Ohio State and boy, we don't have to get all into that. The list 
for how this can happen can be so long in our life. Listen to what Jesus says in John 8. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So the question we really need to ask ourselves is, what is mastering my life? What what is it that I find myself obsessing over? What is it that I find myself thinking, Lord, if you would just give me this, if you would just give me a little bit more power in my life to accomplish this thing, then I would finally have a sense of rest. Notice what was happening in this man's life. His master was clearly killing him. Verse 5, night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and he was cutting himself with stones. So what did he do? Well, the text tells us that he ran to check out a different master, one who did actually have the power to deliver him from evil. Verse 2, it says that when Jesus stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him a man with an unclean spirit. And verse 7, crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. So what is this man doing? And he sees Jesus, and he recognizes, okay, Jesus is more powerful. He actually can deliver me from the masters that are ruining my life. And so he begins to try to negotiate and bargain with him. What have you to do with me? Please do not torment and torture me. Coming face to face with the living God is a terrifying experience. Because when you meet him, truly meet him, you realize two things, that he demands complete subjection to his will and he doesn't negotiate. I'd love for you to be open to the possibility that the reason God brought you here this morning is that he actually wants to deliver you from some form of evil that is ruining your life that you may be completely unaware of. You may actually think it's a part of your life that is working well for you. And as you come to Jesus, you'll notice this tension that this man is experiencing. He runs to Jesus for deliverance, but he also begs him, don't remove these demons too far from me, which is really kind of crazy that the text tells us this. Verse 10, he begged Jesus, do not send the demons out of the country or area. He was begging, in a sense, to keep the demons around Now, one of the keys to understanding this passage is to focus on who's talking when, and in order to do that, you have to pay attention to the use of the singular and the plural. Of course, when the man himself is speaking, it's in the singular. When the legion of demons are speaking in his life, it is in the plural. And so the other gospel accounts tell us that the demons were requesting not to be cast out of the earth before the time of final judgment, but the man here is asking Don't cast them out of the actual area. Why would he do that? They are literally driving him to the grave, but he does it for the very same reason that we do. In a strange way, he feels safer under the rule of evil spirits that he's familiar with than Jesus the king that he can't control whatsoever. And if you think about it, we do the same thing. When we are clearly enslaved to some form of addiction, alcohol, food, working out, sex, money. We find ourselves when we're really struggling saying, Jesus, I need you to help me. I need you to set me free. But not so much that I have to actually bottom out and go to AA or go to rehab 
or stop doing this thing that I really, really need to survive on a regular basis. Maybe for years you've been enslaved by pursuing other people's approval and it's killing you. It's exhausting you. Every night you can't sleep because you're scrolling Instagram and Facebook and TikTok and whatever other ridiculousness. And so you say, Jesus, please help me. I'm so anxious and insecure and I can't numb the pain anymore, but not so much that I'm actually not gonna stay connected or other people may actually laugh at me or pick pick on me. Maybe you've been enslaved by a pursuit of a successful career. You're a workaholic and you can't stop. So you say, Jesus, I need relief that can only come from you. I'm burned out and I'm completely exhausted, but I don't actually wanna get passed over for promotions or make less money next year. Maybe you've been enslaved, fill in the blank. And you come to Jesus and you say, I really want help on these terms. One of my closest friends who has been to rehab three times and and would say that in his third attempt that God graciously delivered him and set him free. Often when I experience talking to people who are clearly enslaved by some addiction, I'm like, hey, give me help, give me counsel of how to approach it. He's like, it's very simple. If you initiate the conversation and someone says, yeah, I know this is a problem, but here's what I'm gonna do, then you just say, great, see you later. And what he's saying is they're not ready to bottom out. They're wanting to negotiate and manage. I know this isn't good, but I I can't kind of go all in in terms of humbling myself and falling on my knees and saying, I am powerless over my addiction. Only God alone can deliver me, which is the first step of AA. He said, when that's the case, just say, hey, go ahead, keep drinking, keep doing whatever. And when you finally make a complete mess of your life and are ready to bottom out, then there's actually hope for deliverance. Listen, Jesus, our King said, the thief, Satan, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I alone have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus came to earth to free us from the things that we've gotten hooked on that are slowly but surely destroying our lives, our families, our communities, and our cities. And it doesn't matter what you're hooked on, Jesus alone can set you free. And I love that he actually cares for this man enough that he gives him a visual picture of what the demons are ultimately wanting to do with him. He sends them into a herd of pigs, and then what do they do? They immediately run into the lake, and they are killed in the sea. This is exactly what all evil plots want to do in our lives. But when we come to Jesus and unconditionally surrender, he alone has the power to defeat evil. And he really is our only hope. There is a tension and I know that I I struggle. One of the things I've been asking God to help me with is live in the gray more. I want to live way too much in the black and white. Anytime my family says, I don't feel good, I knee jerk say, well, you're probably dehydrated and tired. Go sleep, drink some electrolytes, then we'll talk. Those aren't bad things, but it's not complete. It's a very insufficient view. And I think our approach oftentimes in the church in relation to evil um, also can be very naive and minimalistic. And that's why Jesus, our Savior, says, I want you to come to me and pray, will you deliver me from evil? And the good news is that he will. He will deliver us from evil the more we come to him and humbly bow to him alone to deliver us with no negotiation, help me to completely surrender to your will while I long for the day, Lord Jesus, that you come back and I know that I will be totally set free forever. See, the good news of the gospel is that even though we weren't alive when Jesus delivered this man from evil, 
We have eyewitness accounts of how Jesus willingly went to the cross and allowed himself to be shackled and bound, to have all of his clothes stripped off, to be cut and bleeding and ultimately crucified so that he can set us free from the evil that resides in our hearts without destroying us. And that good news is meant to empower us individually and as a community to run to the throne of grace on a regular basis to receive mercy and help in our time of need. And so what I actually want us to do in the next few minutes while we respond in worship is invite you, if you would like prayer, we've got people on our care team that are gonna be available. You can come to this door right here and right in this hallway, we've got some of our women's shepherding team members, one of our elders that would love to pray for you. Even if you don't know exactly what you need prayer for, if you're angry, if you're resentful, if you're bitter, if you just feel like you're struggling in some way, and they'll be available after the service to pray. So let me pray now, and then we'll take some time to respond in worship. Lord Jesus, we do pray that you will lead us not into temptation, but you will deliver us from the evil one. Thank you that in the fullness of time, you allowed yourself to be condemned and nailed to a cross because of the evil and sin that resides in our own hearts. I pray that you will help us to have um, a better, fuller, more biblical view of the transcendent nature of evil. Um, forgive me and forgive us for um, dismissing or excusing the reality of evil and spiritual warfare. Help us, Lord, to run to you. Help us to humble ourselves and to throw ourselves completely at your feet so that we can receive grace and mercy. We pray that in Christ's name, amen.